They were terribly sunburnt, um, their feet were swollen, they, none of them had shoes on, the captain uh, had his feet bandaged, um, and three of them had to be helped onto the stretchers. Um. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. This time, a story of survival and loss in a remote corner of the Earth. Support for Human Nature comes from BioLite Energy. Using renewable energy, BioLite makes portable camping stoves, rechargeable lights, smart solar panels, and more all to power your next adventure outside. Go to biolightenergy.com human and use the code human for 15% off your first order. That's B-I-O-L-I-T-E energy.com human and use the code human. This is part one of a two-part trip down under with Off Track, a podcast from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Off-Track combines the sounds of nature with stories of wildlife, the environment, and people. This story comes from the southernmost part of Australia. There's a tiny little island state down there, the place where Tasmanian devils live. Presenter Ann Jones takes us there, and back in time, to 1973. Well, we've just got a late word to cross straight back to Hobart and Drew Potter. Drew, can you hear me? Yes, Ian, um... Just a a few more words that we were able to record as the men got off the helicopter. They were terribly sunburnt, um, their feet were swollen, none of them had shoes on, the captain uh, had his feet bandaged, um, and three of them had to be helped onto the stretchers. Um, They were all placed firmly into the uh, ambulances. Here's a little bit of what we were able to record just as they were sped away. Are you from uh, the mainland or yeah, Tasmania? I'm Victoria. Would you like to say hello to your family and just tell them that I, you're I pretty like fit? I would like to say hello to my wife if I could. Stand back. Excuse me, sir. Can you tell us uh, the names of the people surviving? Well, I don't know if I should. I don't know. Not all the crew members of the Blythe Star survived. This episode is a story of physical isolation off the southern end of Tasmania when a ship called the Blythe Star ran into some trouble. Excuse me, sir, could you tell us your name? Yes, Cliff Langford. When, when, did, the, when did it capsize? What's today? What the, what's today? About 12 or 14 days ago. It was, Saturday the, it was a Saturday the 12th or 13th. I've just forgotten time. Whereabouts were you, do you know? Southwest Cape. This was October 1973. We're talking of the time of the Watergate scandal in the USA, just months after the Chilean coup d'etat, and Whitlam was Prime Minister here in Australia, and the Blythe Star was under charter to the Tasmanian Transport Commission, transporting superphosphate and beer to King Island. Everything en route was proceeding as usual. Seaman Malcolm McCarroll later spoke with the ABC program Sounds easy. And I turned in once again after I went off at six o'clock. And the next I can recall, I was chucked out of my bunk about, must have been about ten past eight, roughly, you know. And uh, it was pretty obvious to me that something was wrong. She was 
well over on the starboard side. I looked at me porthole and all I could see was salt water. And I stood and watched and I was waiting to see a bit of sky, waiting to see her right herself, but it was pretty obvious she wasn't going to. And then I could hear water coming in. How fast so, was the water coming in? Well, it just sounded like a, a torrent, you know. Yeah. So I, uh, I got out in the alleyway. I could see the water coming along the alleyway. It was only about three or four inches deep at that time. Next to me, there was another cabin, and then the shower room. When I got to the shower room, it was just gushing through the porthole. Well, I managed to shut the porthole, but I couldn't, what we call, dog it down. I couldn't secure it because there's a special spanner nooder for this, and if there was one there, I couldn't see it. But uh, I managed to shut it, and next thing, water started coming through a deckhead ventilator. This is uh, virtually started coming through the roof, and. Uh, then I knew that I had to get out of here, you know. And at that moment, the, the bucko, the ordinary seaman, Mick Dolman, he poked his head around the corner and we just looked at each other as if to say, well, come on, better get out of here. Ordinary seaman, Michael Dolman. I was in bed asleep. I just, I'd come off the two to four watch and uh, it was about eight o'clock, quarter past eight, something like that, when I felt it roll over to the starboard side. Fell out of my bunk. Had a look at the porthole, it was all water. And I sort of climbed out of my cabin, started climbing down the alleyway, and there was all water pouring down it. I, I seen Malcolm McCarroll, he was uh, in the laundry trying to batten down a porthole, but you just couldn't get rid of water, it was just water kept coming in. So we looked How at deep it. was it? The water in the alleyway, about two foot. It was coming in faster and faster. Was it pretty hard to get out? Oh, not when you're, not when you're trying, it's not. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we uh, took off up the stairs got climbed up onto the side of the ship and uh, got the life raft away and cleared it and then got away and she went down stern first. Ordinary seaman Michael Dolman. It was also first time aboard for the cook, Alfred Simpson. We all got clear within about five minutes on the stern end of it, yes. The ten of you got out? Oh, we all got out, yes. How long did it take for the ship to go down? Well, we got in the life raft, I suppose, uh, Five or six minutes. Why do you think it went down? Did it hit a big rock or, or anything? Look, honestly, I couldn't say. I'm not a seaman or anything. I'm only a cook and this is my first trip at sea. We crawled up the, the wall on the companionway leading up onto the mess deck. She was over that far by then. Well, when we got up on deck, it was eerie. The ship had stopped, the motors had stopped. Everything was quiet. You could see, you know, she was in trouble. She was going. I got up onto the port side of the ship, just uh, on the side of the port lifeboat. I see uh, Mickey Powell come out of the wheelhouse and put a life jacket on. I asked him, was there any more there? He said, no. So I grabbed a life buoy and I draped that round my shoulder. And... Uh, I was trying to, I seen Tazzy Leary, the bosun, working on the raft and he was shaking his head as if to say he didn't look, he was going to get her off. So I asked Mick if he could get an axe from the wheelhouse and we could chop the boat falls and at least hope that she'd float off when she went down. She had listed right over to starboard. The starboard boat was practically underwater and the port boat, well, to launch it, you had no possible show in the world. It just couldn't be done. And, uh... Taz asked me to get a wedge for him, so I went back down under the mess deck again. I got a wedge and threw it up. I don't know whether it helped him or not, but he got the raft clear anyway. 
That was one of the best sounds I've ever heard in all my life. And you could hear the raft inflating, you know. The oxygen bottle explodes. And I could hear it, you know, blowing up. And I thought, oh, well, we've got a bit of a show now. So I chucked my life boy away and made me way down onto the next deck again. And I, Tassie had jumped in and I got in. Everyone else made their way down. The mate, he had to swim. I don't know, he had a bit of trouble getting out of his cabin. I think he had to... I think he had to, whether he had to wait for the water to come in to equalise the pressure before he could open the door or exactly what the trouble was. He had trouble getting out anyway and uh, he had to. He was the only one who had to swim for it. I was soaking wet from, you know, trying to close the porthole down below. There was only three of us that actually were a bit wet. The others were all, you know, bone dry. At this stage, Malcolm, mm. had there been any panic at all among the crew? Didn't have time. It happened so Yes, quickly. it didn't have time. Otherwise, I think my man might have froze, you know. He might have worried a bit more about it. But uh, I think we were all that rel- relieved to get into the raft. The raft was uh, secured to the ship by a, a line and it was tied in a bowline. And it was fairly hard to untie this knot. Normally it would have been easy, but whether we were all fingers and... Uh, but fortunately there was a knife in the raft. We got that and we were just about to cut it when we managed to untie it and slip her because it was pretty obvious to us that she didn't have much longer to go. And we got the paddles and we got it clear. And I'd say we'd only be about 100 yards and we would have been much more and she just put her nose up and went down. From the time that you first noticed that there was something wrong aboard the ship until the time that you actually saw her go down, how long would have elapsed? I doubt for more than 20 minutes. 15, 20 minutes, no more. Yeah. After getting clear, we uh, we knew where we were. You could see Southwest Cape. We tried to paddle in the general direction of, of the Cape, but we were being blown. It was a nor'wester, I think it was. So we must have been blown southeast. And we all thought that, oh, well, we be, we'll be in sight of Matsuka Island shortly. And it's just a matter of we'll all be up in the lighthouse that night and home for two Sundays sort of thing. And um, we just then we just started paddling in the general direction of Matsuka. And about 11 o'clock that morning, you could see the lighthouse. You could see the houses of the... I think there's two or three families live there. The lighthouse is kept open on a permanent uh, 24-hour shift sort of thing. The lighthouse keepers on Matsuka Island did not see them. Cliff Langford spoke with Andrew Potter, who was reporting for PM from Hobart. Whereabouts were you, do you know? Southwest Cape, off the Southwest Cape, which you rolled out on. And uh, we had to jump on this uh, collapsible pontoon thing, you know, this RDF. Were you given much warning you were going over? No, no, none at all. None at all. I just come off Just a freak wave? No, no, bad. I wasn't bad seas there then, but somehow or other she got the list on to starboard. Did, did the did ship completely capsize when oh, you were in it? Not while we are in it. No. No, but she walk? was going all the time. She was right over the thing, almost laying on a, on a flat. Was it a rough sea at the time? Not so bad. The sea wasn't so bad then. But that night, oh, that's when we copped Was there a bit of panicking? And that's there was no panic, no. no. What time did, did it happen? Yeah. Half past eight in the morning. Did all men get off the boat? All ten got in the lifeboat. All ten got into the life raft. It wasn't the shipwreck that killed them. It was the ordeal that followed. This is October 1973. The sea is cold, the swell comes up higher than the life raft edges at night, and the men's feet sit in water, they just can't bail it out fast enough. 
Malcolm McCarroll. It, uh, we started the worry after we got past Matsuka and uh, we let flares off and they hadn't acknowledged anything. We tried to send another rocket off, but she was a dud. She didn't work and we had to dump her. And uh, that night, Saturday night, we seen a ship. We assumed it was a Mary Hollyman. We were uh, torching SOS to Matsuka Light that night and to the ship. And... Uh, how far away from Matsuka Light were you? Three miles, we estimated it to be. And that was at the closest point we got to mm. it. And how far were you from the ship that you sighted? She'd be about six miles, five or six miles. Well, we thought that the range of the torch would be no more than about four miles. That uh, This is probably why we weren't seen. We set a flare off that night at Matsuka and at that ship. But we were a little bit worried there's another huge rock just near Matsuka, and we looked like Newston, it's called. We looked like drifting pretty close to that, but we were lucky. We went south of it. And I was starting to get a little bit worried then when uh, the wind didn't seem to be easing down at all in the general direction it was blowing us, that we were going to uh, end up in Antarctic or somewhere, you know. Yeah. And Sunday we were just blowing continually southeast. We went past Pedro Blanco, and that was the same thing. We looked like we were going to get blown onto her. In a way, we were hoping we would get very close to her so we could paddle in behind her and get a bit of a leave from the weather and possibly try and hang on there. You know? But we didn't, we couldn't. And Is we it did. pretty rough um, land around there, if, had you been blown up? Well, Pedro Blanco, it's the most bleakest... Oh, what can I say? The most desolate-looking thing I've ever seen in all my life. It is. It is... There's waves continually breaking on it, you know, and I don't know how high it'd be, roughly, I suppose, 100, 150 feet. Did you see any planes? Not up until the following Friday. That was the... I'm pretty sure that was the only day we seen planes. Actually, from the Monday until Thursday, it was all repetition. It was... You'd... Uh, of a morning, we'd see Bruni or Tasman, Tasman Island, and we'd paddle towards it, and of a night you get blown off again. And I don't know why, but that just seemed to be the, the way it was going during the day. Tasman Island, there's a cut, or it only be about half a mile wide between that and Tasman Peninsula, and we were right in the mouth of it, in the middle. And uh, I was going to try and swim ashore there and get word up to the people on Tasman Light that the raft was still there, or if we even could, to try and get the raft ashore there and get all of us off. It uh, was no good. The wind blew us off again. It blew us up towards Fortescue Bay. We Exactly the same thing happened there. We looked like getting blown on the rocks, but we were fortunate. We got round the corner. And then it was the first time that we actually thought we made it. We were all congratulating each other. And we were heading up the bay, this Fortescue Bay, and Cliffy Langford had said that usually fishing boats shelter in that, and there is a few fishermen shacks there. So we thought, well, you know, we've beat them, we've made it. And you wouldn't want to know, the wind turned again and got blown out. It was... Frustration after frustration. It was, you know. Yeah. And Malcolm, what did you do all day on well, the raft? Paddle. You, we used and to work. Paddle. Mm, paddle. And when you weren't paddling, you'd have a yarn, you know, to the fellas, or a couple of times we tried to get word games and that's silly looking stuff going, but. Uh, didn't seem to be a great deal of interest in that, you know. 
we just discuss what we're going to do when we get ashore and that sort of thing. Or we'd sleep because after about three or four days, you know, you're only eating those biscuits and glue coat and you lose a lot of your strength in it. And you'd, we used to rest quite a lot, day and night, you know. I suppose out of a 24-hour period, you'd sleep 10, 12 hours of it, you know. How much water did you have? Well, we had ample. It uh, had to kick off. But the uh, second engineer, because of this condition he had, he had to have twice the normal intake. So we were virtually giving him more than what we should have, I suppose. Adrift on the ocean, ten men, soon to be nine. You're listening to Human Nature. Support comes from BioLite Energy, a social enterprise dedicated to transforming the way we cook, charge, and light our lives outside and off the grid. A portion of every purchase helps bring safe, reliable energy to families across sub-Saharan Africa. Check out their lineup of outdoor gear at biolightenergy.com human and use the code human for 15% off your first order. That's B-I-O-L-I-T-E energy.com human and use the code human. We left the 10 survivors of the Blythe Star adrift on the open ocean. Ann Jones picks up their story. A version of the men's ordeal was published over several days in the Sydney Morning Herald in November of that year, and the author says that the night had been bitter, but an even worse dawn awaited. Soon after first light, it became clear that the second engineer, John Sloan, the man who had a medical condition, had passed away during the night. Sure that rescue was only a matter of hours away, the men covered the body with a sheet of plastic. And all that day the raft pitched and tossed and was driven north. The men paddled continuously in shifts, trying to steer the raft towards civilization. But by nightfall, their hopes for a quick rescue had faded. The body of the engineer was given a sea burial, pushed over the side of the raft. And the captain apparently said these words, John Sloan, you haven't been with us very long. You've done your job well and you've been a good shipmate to all of us. We're sorry it has to be done in this way. But wherever you go, we hope you'll be happy. God bless you. Still no sign of the missing coastal trader, the Blythe Star, which is overdue on a voyage from Hobart to Grassy in King Island, where it was expected to arrive on Sunday. An air and sea search has so far failed to find the ship. Here's Andrew Potter in Hobart. Last night, preliminary searches by light aircraft failed to sight the vessel. The operations have since been put in charge of the National Marine Operations Centre in Canberra. At first sight, they called in the Air Force to continue the search. In Hobart, the person in charge of all inquiries is Mr Neil Batt, Chief Secretary and Minister for Transport. The last contact we had with the vessel was Friday evening when the the captain indicated that he was going up the west coast of Tasmania to King Island. It's known for certain that they went up the west coast? No, it's not known for certain at all. It's known that the captain intended to go up the west coast, but he could have decided when he got out into, uh, out to sea that the weather was uh, breaking up in such a way that it could have been more appropriate for him to turn around and go up the east coast. He may have done that. We just don't know. How long will the search go on? Well, uh, we just can't determine. It's my hope, of course, that um, within, within hours that we'll discover the vessel. 
uh, it's my hope that there will have been needless cause for concern. After about a week or so, that, and that we seen the planes and they'd missed us, I think everyone just sort of think, thought, well, look, whatever's going to be done, we're just going to have to do it ourselves, and we, we might as well realise this, because we realised then that it had been over a week since the ship had sunk, and it's pretty obvious they're not going to search forever, and they'd probably given us up, so we're just going to have to do it ourselves. And when, on the, the Saturday, the day before we got to land, when you're only within half a mile of the coast all the time. I think everyone realised then that it's only a matter of time before we're going to be ashore, but just where are we going to end up? Are we going to be able to get out? Will we be in you know accessible country sort of thing? And when we could see the Lufra Hotel, and this, our spirits were that high then, everyone's joking to themselves, you know. Exactly the same as the last place we were then. There's a place called the Tessellated Pavement. It's a well-known tourist spot. We could see it there. It was, we think, we're pretty sure there was a woman standing near a Volkswagen, looking down into the bay. Whether she's seen us or not, we'll never know. But uh, this is what it looked like to us, you know. She, if she did see, she probably just thought we were out for a day's fishing sort of thing. I don't know, you know. But uh, the same story, we got blown off. And we were a bit fed up then. I was, myself, I was just of the opinion, well, look, let's get ashore somewhere, anywhere. Don't give a damn. It's just as long as we get on that land. I was getting a bit fed up. I think everyone was, you know. Well, how did you get on that land? Well, we were going to go ashore that night, virtually, it looked like it, but we had a change of heart at the last moment because it was a pretty little rough stretch where we were, and we hung on to a kelp bank. We'd only be about 50 yards off the coast, but we hung on and we were hoping that the wind had changed and blow us back up towards the Lufra in the morning. But it didn't. We, got, uh, we broke adrift from the Kelf Bank and were blown up the coast instead of down. And that must have been four, three or four o'clock in the morning when we broke off. But about six o'clock, six or seven o'clock the next morning, we were only about a hundred yards off land. And actually the place where we looked like we were going to go ashore, it was shocking, it was bleak. And the mate said to us, then he said, well, look, if you, that's where we end up. He said, that's where we'll all stay. You'll never get out of there. So we grabbed the paddles again. We had another burst. We just paddled until we virtually dropped and someone else would take over. You'd only last about three or four minutes and you had it and someone else would have a go. But it worked and it got us clear. And we come ashore in, as I think it's deep, Glen Cove, Glen or Deep Glen Cove, something like that. And uh, we were very lucky. There was fresh water. There was a little creek. There was no sand. It was all rocks. But it was on a sort of a gentle slope. It wasn't as if we were going to get flipped over or anything at all like that. And the funny part was, when after we got ashore, we all jumped out thinking we'd be able to run up the beach and just lay down and congratulate each other and everything. But you can't walk. It's as if you've been drinking all day, as if you're as full as a boot, you know. You, you, you lose all your sense of balance from the drift, not like, you know, from being constantly tossed around for the week, you know, beforehand. And in fairly cramped conditions too, I mean. Mm, mm. Mm. The men had spent over a week in the inflatable life raft before they made it to shore, 
and they landed in such a remote area, thick with bush and scrub and cliffs, that they battled for days to gain strength enough to get out. Jack Eagles was the chief engineer and the oldest man in the crew. Mal McCarroll was up the cliff face looking through thick bush when he saw Eagles climb down to what was left of the raft, take his overalls off and lay down with his arms folded across his body in the cold. By the time they'd made it back down the cliff, Eagles was dead. Then Kenneth Jones fell and hurt his ankle as the group tried to find a way out of the cove. Unable to start a fire, the men slept that night huddled together in tussock grass. During the night, Jones moved away, and later in the morning he crawled further down the rocks bit by bit. This is from the Sydney Morning Herald version of what followed. He stayed in that position for about five hours. Then he moved another six feet, took off his sweater, rolled it up and lay down. He never moved again. Ian, just to confirm that the Blythe Star did go down off the southwest Cape. Uh, three men have lost their lives. They are Chief Officer Kenneth Jones, John Sloan of Victoria and John Eagles of New South Wales. Are you from uh, the mainland or yeah, down Maine? Victoria. Would you like to say hello to your family and just tell them that I'm, you're pretty like fit? To say hello to my wife if I could. As you know, the Maine sea and air search had been called off. The men actually rescued themselves and were discovered climbing out of the bush by truck driver Rod Smith. Two blokes uh, was standing on the side of the road, actually. They'd been walking, and uh, when I first saw them, I didn't know what I'd struck. You know, they were tattered and torn and scratched about a bit. Anyway, I pulled up and uh, one of the chaps said, you won't believe this, but we're from the Bly Star. Well, you know, they hopped in and all I had for Did you believe them? Well, uh, you know, I had a look at them and I couldn't help but believe them because that would be the only people that would be down in that place. Anyway, they hopped in the truck and uh, all I had for them to eat or anything, I had a few cough lollies, they ate them and uh, I had a bottle of cordial and they drank that. It's the country line, did they uh, scramble it's through? It's rugged, very rugged. They've done a damn good job to get through it. Short while ago, Andrew Potter met the helicopter which brought the seven survivors into Hobart Airport. The helicopter touched down literally only about five minutes ago. Um, on board were four survivors. Um, they were looking wretched, to, to say the least. Uh, and uh, as they got off, there was a mad scramble between the police and the pressmen uh, to try and talk to them. And uh, here's a little of uh, what we were able to record. Can you tell us what happened, Captain? What actually happened? She capsized. She capsized. That's all it was about. Did you get any warning at all? No. What was it? A pretty rough first. No, she was. She was beautiful weather. When when did it capsize? Just went over, yeah. And the skipper's wife, Mrs. Crookshank. Now you've seen your husband. uh, How do you think he looks? Terrible. I mean, I've never seen him with a beard before. He seems shocked, you know what I mean? He, he doesn't seem to know what he's doing. You know what I mean? He, when I'm talking about the other sailors, he, he doesn't know. He said, um, oh, uh, who do you mean? You know, and uh, I'm trying to tell him all this, but it doesn't seem as if it's sinking in. Did you expect to see him? Had you given up hope at all? No, I never gave up hope, never, no. I, there was something, what gave me hope he was still alive. I don't know what it was, but I just had hope he was alive. Excuse me, sir, could you tell us your name? Yes, Cliff Langford. Clifford Langford, we've been uh, talking to your son uh, the last couple of days. Larry? Yeah. yeah where, where was he? Oh, he's been down here. He's been uh, been asking after you. Oh, I can't. Um, when, when, did the, when did it capsize? What's the day? 
what the, what's the day? Wednesday. About 12 or 14 days ago. It was, Saturday the, it was a Saturday the 12th or 13th. I've just forgotten time. Oh, you know. Oh, well, I'm just dying to get down there, you know, see how he is and everything. When the news came through yesterday, there was no doubt how the wife of Abel Seaman Clifford Langford felt. She talked to Margot Marshall. What did you go through in those 11 days of waiting? Oh, I suppose grief at first and then anxiety and half hope and half despair. Do you think this will put him off going to sea again, this sort of experience? No, he just loves the sea. I, I said today to somebody, I'll never let him go to sea again, but a minute later I turned around and I said, I'll never be able to stop him. Three men died during the ordeal that followed the wreck of the Blythe Star, and the search split over the two sides of the Tasmanian coastline was the most extensive up to that time. The authorities weren't sure which side she'd gone up, and the inquiry after the accident contributed to the establishment of the OSREP ship reporting system, which tracked ships' movements much more closely, hopefully avoiding further ordeals like this one. Of course, this isn't the whole story of those who survived or those who passed away. It's just a glimpse into the torment suffered by the crew of the Blythe Star, left afloat at the mercy of the ocean and surviving by their wits. A story that definitely went off track. This story of the Blythe Star was completely constructed from archival material, all from 1973, just as the ship went down and the men got into that dinghy. But then, as she was putting together this story... Ann Jones found the one last surviving member of the Blythe Star, and he agreed to be interviewed. His story is part two of this episode. It's in your feed now. And to hear more of Off Track, just type in Off Track ABC into your podcast app, and then listen to the sounds of Australia. I'm Caroline Ballard. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.